Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good evening, folks. 8.07 on a fabulous Saturday. Congratulations again to the Gophers for that amazing win over Penn State. Uh, let the celebration continue. It just... An awesome moment for Minnesota sports fans. Time now for one of my absolute favorite guests, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Could could you hear the cheers from TCF Bank Stadium in St. Paul today? Oh, it was incredible. Yeah. Um, and like everybody else, biting my uh, nails in I the know. last minute or so. I know. It's like that. the last two minutes you're like, oh, I can't look, but I got to look. Oh, we're like, can they please? Because everybody was worried and thinking, oh, my God, the Gophers are going to lose it in the last minute. Yes, but they didn't. They didn't. They didn't. They pulled it through, so it was just great. Um, well, listen, so great to talk to you as always. Obviously, an awful lot going on. One of the things we are going to see this week, and folks, uh, if you are really have your daytime soap operas that you like, you might they might end up getting bumped. I'm just I'm saying, just brace yourself because uh, these these hearings are going to be televised, and most of the networks are going to be carrying large majorities of this testimony what's going on here and this is this seems to be the new phase where it's the public phase but yet there's some stuff that's still going on that's not public what what should we know about this well first off what we should be thinking about here is that this is not unusual we saw this back for those of us who remember it back in the 1970s with with richard nixon where we had for a very long period of time the house judiciary and then in many cases the senate judiciary um, televising their hearings into um, Watergate and eventually the impeachment inquiry in the House Judiciary. And also we had not quite as long, but we had something similar too during the Clinton impeachment proceedings. And so so this is very typical and partly why the media does this. And I think this is, and oftentimes, and you know, you're, you're a reporter and you oftentimes hear people beating up on reporters in the news media, but this is going to be one of those. Yes, times, we do. We do. But this <laughs> is one of those times where I think, I know you're going to lose whatever the, whatever few remaining daytime soap operas there are. But I think, you know, the mainstream media is doing the right thing and saying that um, the decision to impeach a president of the United States is, is an incredibly important decision. And part of why you televise these hearings is so that the American public directly can hear what people are saying and, in part, make up their own minds. Because at the end of the day, impeachment proceedings are at least partially political, questions of political judgment. And I think representatives are going to be taking their cues from from what their constituents say, at least we would hope that in a representative democracy, there's some connection between what we think, what we think about Donald Trump, and what our, and how our representatives vote. So a lot of this now is not just going to be um, information gathering investigations by the House of Representatives to decide if there's an impeachable offense, 
but also to really, what, educate the American public. And I think the media is doing the right thing by covering it. Right. And and, and certainly, um, you know, this testimony will be there. P- parts of it sound like it will be extremely dramatic. Yes. Uh, just because the, the testimony that's been recounted sounds like it's, it's fairly dramatic. Um, that being said, oh, the, and let me ask you, the, the, the latest sort of wave out there is that Republicans uh, want these committees that are holding these hearings to call Hunter Biden, uh, the son of vice former Vice President Joe Biden, who and it was that Hunter Biden sort of at the center of this in that the president had wanted the Ukraine to announce the Ukrainian government to announce that, that he was under investigation, which he's not. Right. Um, and it, it doesn't appear that the Republicans are going to get their wish. Is that because Adam Schiff and the Democrats basically control these committees and they can decide who the witnesses are and who the witnesses are not? Yes, correct. Although although they're giving the Republicans an opportunity to to say um, you, you have some input into this, you know, ultimately it's majority rule, including in the House of Representatives. And what we're going to see here is that the Democrats are going to come back and argue and say that, A, um, Hunter Biden did nothing wrong. He's been, you know, there's been reviews of what him and his father may or may have not done. They've been cleared. And B, um, it's immaterial to the core questions regarding whether or not the president of the United States did anything that deserves impeachment. Right. But this sounds and, – and ultimately when it ends up in – and it does, it does appear at this point, doesn't it, that there are the votes there for impeachment in the House. This is just a simple majority. Yes, correct. Absolutely correct. And the way it's set up at this point, um, Adam Schiff has been given incredible amount of authority by Nancy Pelosi and the House to really sort of um, to direct you know, what's going to happen. And again, for those of us who think back again to the, you know, sort of the classic back in the 1970s, Peter Rodino, who was the chair of House Judiciary, um, was given an incredible amount of authority to be able to make a lot of these decisions. As were the major, uh, as were was the committee, but, but the big difference is, and this is what we have to be thinking about, both in 1998 with Clinton and 74 with Nixon, um, we were a far less polarized um, political system than we are now, um, and we didn't have these same types of um, antagonisms that we do in terms of going into the Trump inquiry. Right, um, but it. it you know, that being said, I mean, so let's say it does go through the House impeachment. He is impeached, which it, it looks like there's a decent chance that will happen. Then it goes to the Senate. And there it, it doesn't seem like it's close to having the votes there because obviously the Senate is, is Republican controlled. Right. It does seem that Republicans are allowing the president to shift the bar a little bit in that. Uh, the president has said, um, you know, from the beginning, there's no quid pro quo. There's no quid pro quo. It looks increasingly like there was a quid pro quo and that that's what all these witnesses are going to say. And it looks like Republicans are going to say or the president's going to say, well, so what? It, it Nothing happened. You know, they got the aid. Um, and, and that's Republicans are going to say, well, that, that that's all right, um, which is really sort of an extraordinary set of circumstances in and of itself. Right. Now, I was going to say, so two points here. One, you're absolutely right. Just to remind people, um, the House has to find at least one article of impeachment by a majority vote. 
Um, the managers in the House will then prosecute the case in the Senate, and the Senate has to, by a two-thirds vote, determine if, in fact, um, there is enough evidence to support at least one ground of impeachment that the House has provided. Um, the House is going to provide its evidence. And remember, in the Senate, the Senate, the president's going to be able to provide um, his own defense. And even if Hunter Biden and all that information doesn't come in during the House, um, I suspect it's going to come in during the Senate part of the proceedings. Um, Biden and all that information doesn't come in during the House. Um, I suspect it's going to come in during the Senate part of the proceedings. Um, and, and so that's where I think it's, it's going to happen. And I think that's in the Senate. You're going to see this argument to say that that there was no quid pro quo or or they got he got the aid anyhow. Now, even though impeachment proceedings in the impeachment trial is not a criminal proceeding. It, um, and that's important because you don't, it, have to, you don't have to meet that threshold. You don't have to meet that threshold. Um, but let's say even if we were talking about a crime here, um, um, if, if, for example, and I know, of course, you would never try to do it, but let's say you tried to, um, to, tried to kill me or something like that, even if you didn't succeed, attempt is still illegal. Um, and that's the important point to bring up here also, is that, again, we, we're not talking about a criminal issue, but if we, even if we were, attempt is also um, a critical issue. And just because you couldn't figure out how to do it or you were not, I don't know, let's say you were trying to take a gun and shoot me and, and you're not a good aim and you missed, that doesn't get you off from, um, from, from being liable. Right. It, it it seems as if the Republicans really are going to stick hard on this whole uh, notion that this is just one more attempt uh, to basically undo the 2016 election. And, and they, that that's pretty coherent. I mean, I, I feel like that's a talking point that's out there that's really, really resonating. And I don't see – you know, major Republicans, especially in the Senate, drifting away from that. And and again, that that vote that they had on the impeachment procedure, uh, I guess it was a week ago Thursday, was so striking because not one, not one Republican broke party lines on that. Yeah, and and I don't think we're going to. And if we get to, and if we do get to where the House votes to impeach and it goes to the Senate, remember it's two thirds. Um, and right now, two-thirds vote um, in order to impeach the president of the United States. Effectively, it is a 53 Republican, 47 Democrat um, balance. You would have to see 20 Republicans bolt um, to vote for him, um, to vote to um, uphold articles of impeachment. I can't see any scenario right now. Now, is it conceivable that? Let's say if more information comes out, let's something even more, let's say, incriminating, of course possible. But, but the way the Republicans are sticking together right now, um, I would be incredibly surprised um, if the president, um, if he is impeached, is removed from office. Um, so the question really becomes the, the, the purpose or, or the end game in terms of what happens with Donald Trump now having been the fourth president in American history, subjected to impeachment proceedings, and how does it affect his 2020 presidential campaign? And the timing of this. Yes, the timing I think is critical. Now, remember a few weeks ago, or maybe it was about a month or two ago, things, I'm losing track of time right now because this is all moving so rapidly. It's, it's moving so rapidly. Right, but remember Mitch McConnell had said at one point, expect a trial in the Senate 
in in November. What's well, not going to happen? Um, I'm still convinced that we're not going to see an impeachment vote by the House before the end of the year, if not till later. And, and realistically, I say that for a couple of reasons. One, or three reasons. One, I think the House needs time to gather information. Two, the president is fighting everything tooth and nail, and the courts are going to have to resolve this. And then three, just to be quite honest here, I think that you're going to see the House take some breaks between what? Thanksgiving and the first of the year, like everybody else does. So I'm really expecting, if an impeachment vote occurs, it to occur sometime in the um, the winter, um, possibly um, in the spring of 2020, which then would put, and if, assuming they do vote to impeach the president, that puts a trial into what? The end of the, the primary season towards the convention, perhaps even towards the general election. Wow. Uh, it, it, it's really extraordinary. We do have to take a break. Um, when we come back, I, I do want to ask you about the possible entry into the race of Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, as a Democrat, uh, because all these things are occurring sort of simultaneously. And it's again, they're all sort of kind of meshing together and sliding off each other and bumping off each other and sorting them out isn't that easy. And that's what we're trying to do here. So you are listening to News Talk 830. Keep it here, folks. More with David Schultz after this. It is 823, 35 degrees in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. So much to talk about. Um, I want to ask you, though, about the fact that Mayor Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, uh, who is a billionaire, he's worth $50 billion. He's one of the richest men in the world, is considering jumping into the race. He is a, by all accounts, he's a former Republican. Uh, He has switched parties. He's now a Democrat. Uh, but he is a, a conservative Democrat, and he is talking about bypassing the early states. And this is something that's never been done successfully before. So he's bu- talking about bypassing uh, Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina and jumping straight to Super Tuesday. Minnesota, we're in Super Tuesday, folks, uh, and that is March 3rd, I believe. Yes, correct. What What are your thoughts about this? Because it's... He's a big deal, and he's been very active. He has a whole network um, that he has set up on on a couple of key issues. He's been extremely active in, you know, promoting gun control efforts um, around the country. There, there's a group here, uh, Minnesota Moms uh, Against Guns. He helps sponsor that. I mean, he's been very active on climate change. Uh, he, he's had a presence, um, even though he hasn't been mayor for a number of years. What are your thoughts about his this strategy of his? Well, it's, 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 well, first off, we, there's two things we have to think about with Bloomberg, and I think you hinted at him here. You know, unlike, let's say, Tom Steyer, who's also a billionaire running as a Democrat, you, you know, and most of us are going to say, well, who's Tom Steyer? You know, he's never held office. And also I was going to say that for most of us, um, having made your money as a hedge fund manager is not something that most of us are endeared to. Uh, right. Um, but, you know, Mayor Bloomberg um, is, is what, as I said, three-time mayor of the city of New York. He's flirted with several times, perhaps running for president of a- the Including United. earlier for this time. And, right. and ruled it out. It ruled it out. And, right, he's worth $50 billion. Okay. Now, I, I try to get on as many email lists for candidates as possible. And Bernie Sanders sent out one today and pointed out that given how much he's worth, 
even if he only spent what was it now something like something like what one percent of his net wealth um, it would be what five hundred million dollars that he would be able to commit um, to running for president of the United States that would put him well beyond what anybody has in terms of money right now which is extraordinary yeah and not to say that money buys elections because we know it doesn't but what money could buy for him um, is is that incredible name recognition um, advertising it does a lot of things for him so the reason why I say that is that normally I would say that bypassing the early primaries doesn't help you but when we think in terms of of the fact that this is a a race right now uh, among the democrats where where no candidate has a clear lead um, maybe it's warren maybe it's it's biden but support for biden seems to be at times mixed you know in terms of 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 of, 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 of really yes. the moderates concerned about him bloomberg would enter as the candidate who would be the the moderate choice for the Democrats, um, the alternative to the Warren to the Sanders people, and going into Super Tuesday, which is going to include obviously, of course, Minnesota, but also California and also Texas. Um, his kind of money might make a difference in terms of advertising, but still, he doesn't have the ground troops and to get out the vote. So it's a risky strategy, but. He has the resources and some following, um, um, and again, a divided Democratic Party that he has some opportunities on Super Tuesday, but it's still a long shot strategy. Right. Um, And it's kind of been met with a lot of who does he think he is on social media. Right. Um, I mean, I haven't seen any group kind of saying, wow, we're dying for Mayor Bloomberg to, to come in, um, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of, you know, sort of references to his wealth in, in sort of disparaging terms, saying, you know, obviously only a billionaire could do this, which right. I think is true. Right. And, um, you know, uh, the candidates themselves that are here, I saw a quote from Senator Klobuchar saying, well, he, what, he obviously thinks that we're, you know, not good enough. Right. <laughs> Clearly. Right. And Klobuchar, I think, is one of the persons who I think is potentially damaged by his campaign. Now, she had good news earlier this week. She's qualified for the December debate. Some polls now have her up to 5% in the polls. Uh, But she's been banking on hoping that erosion for support by Joe Biden would benefit her as another moderate. Uh, So far, Peter Buttigieg, uh, Buttigieg has been, I think, benefiting from from a little bit of that that weakened support for Biden. But if Bloomberg were to enter, this gives many moderate Democrats um, yet another possible choice in terms of who to vote for. And certainly, again, not saying that that this that Bloomberg um, would succeed. But now what it does is potentially fragment even more the moderate wing of the base, um, as opposed to necessarily giving or, or galvanizing around him. Right. And, and I think that that's certainly what Senator Klobuchar, she's, she's saying, you know, look at me, look at me. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm the moderate that, 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 that could win this. And, and so far, yes, she has had an uptick, not one as much as Buttigieg, but Clearly, Bloomberg would be in that lane. That's more – not one as much as Buttigieg, but 
clearly Bloomberg would be in that lane, that more centrist lane. Right. And, and the difficulty is, is that the amount of money that he would have to touting himself um, and advertising himself is just, no matter how good of a job Senator Klobuchar has done, she can't compete with his resources. We just, we just know that. Um, and again, as you pointed out, on at least a cu- couple of issues, especially the issue of guns, which is a big issue for many Democrats, he, he's taken a very prominent profile in the last few years. And I would not be surprised if that becomes a central message of, of so many of his, um, of his political advertising. Wow. All right. Well, listen, we have to take a quick break. We've got to give you some weather. When we come back, we'll have more with David Schultz after this. You're listening to News Talk 830. All right. 835 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz. Um, A lot of harping this past week about uh, the results in Kentucky where a Democrat won the governor's race and also in Virginia where the Democrats captured both uh, the House and the Senate uh, locally in terms of of the state legislature. I want to ask you about the Kentucky thing because a lot of people – there are a lot of people saying, well, this is a bad sign for Donald Trump. He came the night before and said, you know, you guys have got to elect – uh, Republican, because if he doesn't, if you don't elect him, it's going to look really badly for me. And the Democrat has won, although it's being challenged. It was very, very close. You know, my question is, yes, the president did elevate the stakes by saying, if, if you don't vote for Bevins, the Republican, it's going to look really badly on, on me. So he elevated the stakes. Right. He came there. But the per- and there was definitely inroads, especially in the suburbs. You always talk about how important the suburbs are, uh, you know, in terms of with Democrats. The Democrats were making inroads in the suburbs. But the winner, uh, the governor, presumed governor-elect Bashir, this is not somebody who is wildly progressive. This is somebody who is very moderate, very moderate. And it, it's an indication of, in my view, of the kind of, of positions a candidate would have that could perhaps beat President Donald Trump, uh, as opposed to this all-out, this is a defeat for Donald Trump. I mean, I think it's a warning that that Democrats have got to be careful of who they choose, that there's the potential there to win, but it's got to be the right Democrat. I think you're absolutely correct. There's a couple things to think about here, is that Kentucky is not a a full-blown repudiation of Trump. Now, right, and to, it, the other Republicans did well in the state. They did well in the state. This guy's apparently not that great. <laughs> right, and if we actually look at the polls, um, that the Democrat was actually leading by quite a bit more, and the fact that it got closer, Trump can actually make the claim and say that were it not for me coming in and campaigning, the Democrat would have won even bigger. So, And he's so, saying exactly that. Yeah, so, so it's a little bit more ambiguous, but you're absolutely correct here in terms of, of a critical point, is that as I'm going to remind, I think we need to remind every, everybody listening for the next, 11, or next 12 months at this point, is that it's not about the popular vote. We know that. To win the presidency, it's the race to get to 270 electoral votes um, that that it's really come down to, and this is what a lot of my research is about, is to say it may come down to less than about 10 states, maybe even four or five states that really determine the election. And when we look at states, for example, such as 
um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, um, perhaps Minnesota, um, it may come down to saying, okay, in order to be able to win in those states, you have to find a, a more moderate candidate who might appeal to those swing voters in those, in those suburbs in those states. And so you look at somebody like an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders, who I think are incredibly popular in places like Minneapolis and St. Paul or Ann Arbor, Michigan or Madison, Wisconsin, but the races are not going to be completely decided in those states, in those areas, but it's going to be in those suburbs, which are, are, are more moderate. And so that's, I think, one of the messages that comes out, that at a national level, you need to think about the candidate who's going to best play or be best positioned in terms of those critical swing voters in those swing states. And then if you're also talking about the issue of, let us say, control of the House of Representatives, control of the, um, let's say, the Senate, I still think Tip O'Neill, um, former um, U.S. Speaker of the House, was correct when he said all politics is local and you still want candidates who are well-suited ideologically to, um, to, to, to run in their district. And the reason why I mention this, I'm hearing a lot of people still criticizing Colin Peterson for voting against going along with the impeachment inquiry. And look at his district. It's very conservative. I believe it was one but of the Trump most— Trump won by 30 percentage points. Right. It's a, it's, 31. That's right. It was the strongest pro-Trump district in the state. And A, for political survival, I don't think he could have voted for, for the inquiry. And B, again, if representative government means anything, if your constituents are telling you, I support Donald Trump, it might make sense to say, I'm not going to support an impeachment inquiry. Right. And, and that's, you know, the question I, I did an interview last week with Congressman Tom Emmer, who is, of course, the congressman from Minnesota's 6th Congressional District. He's also the chair of the National Republican Republican Congressional Committee. So it's his job to make sure that all Repu- that Republicans take back the House. Not clear if they're going to do that. But he, you know, I talked to him for, for, for a long time, both, you know, on camera and we did a Facebook Live. And he really said um, pretty darn clearly, Elizabeth Warren is not going to beat Donald Trump. She's just not that that that, that she is too progressive to beat Donald Trump, and that he believes that the impeachment inquiry is going to seal the deal for Donald Trump. And I think it's something that we can't ignore, that possibility. I think you're absolutely correct, is that, is that put this way, Elizabeth Warren may beat, let's say she gets the nomination, she may beat Donald Trump in the popular vote, but I'm not sure if she beats Donald Trump in in Ohio, in Florida, in Michigan, um, in those critical swing states are going to determine the election. And I think that is, that is something that has to be thought about because the, the Democratic Party um, electorate, let's say, or, or base may be further, to, maybe, we don't know, maybe further to the left than where the decisive swing voter is in those few critical swing states. And if that's the case, then I think Congressman Emmer um, is probably correct in terms of saying that that an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders um, 
is is not well positioned in critical places to be able to defeat Donald Trump and for the Democrats to win the Electoral right. College to win the president. Yeah. And, and I think I've mentioned this before. The Trump campaign here in Minnesota is incredibly well organized. I mean, I've been really blown away by how well organized they are in terms of their outreach to reporters, their availability. Uh, they clearly are putting enormous resources into Minnesota. I presume that they're also doing that in Wisconsin and Michigan and you know Pennsylvania, the, those those key states that put them over the top once again. Uh, but it's it's something to behold, and and it's amazing to think that in less than a year this election is going to happen. Well, you're absolutely correct, and it's important to think about also. Even if by some chance Minnesota is not a swing state, and I think it definitely is, the fact that Democrats have to defend the state and to put resources into it basically means they have fewer dollars and fewer resources to put into those other Midwestern states. And really what Donald Trump did in 16 was to say, I'm going to make the Midwest the battleground for the presidency. And he succeeded. And now he's pushing it a little bit further. He's added Minnesota to it. I think, what, the only two Midwestern states that didn't go for Donald Trump in 16 were Minnesota and Illinois. It's still unlikely Illinois, um, giving its composition in Chicago, um, would be fertile territory for Trump. But every other state in the Midwest, now including Minnesota, um, I think is, is up for grabs. Right. And and certainly, you know, from that Trump rally uh, that was uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, you know, the, the, the support for him cannot be underestimated. Uh-huh. I mean, I think opponents just need to be very, very careful of that because I think people were guilty of that. Democrats were guilty of underestimating him last time around. Um, one of the main issues, obviously, the, the impeachment um, debate is, is fueling so much of this election, and it will continue to do so. As we talked about the timing, but one of the main, main issues here is: Do we out the whistleblower? Donald Trump Jr. put on his Twitter feed the name of possibly the whistleblower. Um, there have been some decisions. Facebook has decided that they are going to pull uh, any kind of reference to who the whistleblower is. Uh, there's a lot of talk about outing him, not outing him. There are laws behind all of this and whistleblowers. This is, you know, whistleblowers are not not relative outing him, not outing him. There are laws behind all of this and whistleblowers. This is, you know, whistleblowers are not not relatively common, but they come in in sort of all shapes and sizes at the federal level. Obviously, this one is a huge deal, uh, but also in local cases as well. What are your thoughts about this push by by many Republicans to out the whistleblower? First off, I always like to point out to people that one of the things that's true about whistleblowers, it's a deep cultural thing. We hate whistleblowers, even though we say we like them. And the reason why I say that, I like to tell a story to my students. I'll do it briefly here. Is Remember the situations back when you were in grade school or junior high school? Um, somebody throws a paper airplane or eraser. Teacher stops and says, who threw it? Nobody confesses. She says, we're all going to get punished. Now, if you went to a school like I did, you never raised your hand and said, Miss Smith, um, so-and-so threw it, because if you did, guess what? Recess would not be pretty. And I mention that because think about from the earliest levels, we, call, we don't want to be called a fink, a stool pigeon, a tattletale, et cetera, et cetera. So part of it is when Trump is equivocating a whistleblower with traitor, he's, he's, he's tapping into that deep 
deep-seated sort of hate for people. Um, that, that kindergarten mentality. That kindergarten <laughs> mentality, which is very, very powerful in our culture. Um, so that's one. But two, I think what Republicans are hoping is that if they can out this person, they can somehow say that, what, he's a never-Trumper, or we can dismiss his credibility. But at the end of the day, on one level, it doesn't matter if he's outed, because what? All the information that he's provided has now been significantly corroborated by other witnesses and other testimony, so that even if you discount him, you've got other stuff that's out there. But more importantly, though, why it actually is important to protect his um, his anonymity or hers anonymity, we just don't know who it is at this point, is the fact that we have a whole framework of law. Some of it debates debates or, or not not debates that dates back to the colonial era that says that what we want to encourage people to blow the whistle to root out fraud and corruption, and especially since the 1970s post Watergate, we've passed a series of laws that oftentimes guarantee anonymity. Because, because we hate whistleblowers so much, and they're and they're attacked or their their um, actions are taken against them, we want to insulate them from political reprisal so that they will root out fraud and corruption. So I think there's a bigger issue here, a bigger issue that says that that we really have to um, protect these individuals um, because. They do an important service for our society. Um, over time, they've rooted out incredible amounts of fraud and abuse in the Defense Department, the Intelligence Department. They've rooted out spies within the government. Um, they've done enormously important things, and we need to protect them. Well, how about uh, there's the whistleblower who's going through these, you know, legal channels that are set up, you know, by members of Congress. Mm-hmm. You know, these these are the laws that. that you know, our elected representatives have set up to provide, you know, this channel for these whistleblowers to come forward and do this. But there's another person who is the anonymous uh, author of that op-ed in The New York Times uh, about a year ago, who now has a whole book coming out. Where does he fall, he or she fall in, in all of this? Well, I was going to say, first off, that book comes out a week from Monday. I don't know about you. I already have my Kindle edition pre-ordered. Oh, dear. Yeah. So, I'm, so, so you know what I'm going to be doing on that yeah. Monday? I'm going to be reading the book like, like probably you're going to be reading it too. Um, but, but where he falls in is in a different way. He's not a whistleblower in the, in the sense of the information that he has is being used for, um, for, let's say, moving along the impeachment inquiry. But I'm also going to say that there's an important value to allow people who work within government, protected under the First Amendment rights of free speech, to be able to discuss matters of public concern. And that's important for the purposes of what? Also rooting out corruption, rooting out potential abuses of power. And also, in some sense, um, that's sort of the job of the First Amendment, to provide the public with important information, including about our government and our elected officials. Well, it, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what the reaction is. Cause, and there, there also have been efforts, uh, some Republicans have said he should not have be able to profit off of this book. And again, that becomes a First Amendment issue here, is that, is that if people, you know, if you basically take away the profits from somebody, um, aren't you now punishing somebody for the very content of their speech? And the so you, answer you, is yes. So, so you think that's a problematic argument? Oh, that's a very problematic argument, um, and, and that would not survive um, on the First Amendment if they were to do that. All right. 
Well, listen, David Schultz, as always, a tremendous pleasure. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your insights. Thank you very much. Go All ahead. right. Absolutely. The one and only David Schultz. Okay, we have to take a break here. I kind of blew through the break earlier. Uh, you are listening. What's that? I said, yes, you did. Yes, I but did. The yes, I did. Was great. <laughs> well, it's so interesting to talk to him because he's so he's so knowledgeable mm-hmm. about so many things. And, and there's there are really so many things. I mean, there's the whistleblowers following the whistleblower laws. And there's this guy who's writing a book. Well, you know? and he makes everything so plain. You know, a right, lot of times right. politics is so confusing just right. to the average person, but he right. just breaks it down so that everybody he really does. Understands. And he's got the legal background too. Mm-hmm. It's it's just it's it's it, it, this is a fascinating time that we're living in. It really, really is. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick break now. Finally, uh, getting it in. Uh, you're listening to News Talk eight three L. It is eight fifty four in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you for just a couple more minutes. Want to give a huge shout out. Uh, to Susan Blanche, who is the main producer for this show. She always does a great job. I felt really badly the last week. I didn't say anything to her uh, to thank her for booking all the guests and also want to thank Jonathan Lowe and Chaletta for keeping us on the air, keeping it real, keeping it fun. Uh, it's uh, always great. I'm so glad to be back on on a semi-regular basis. We get bumped a lot here on Saturday nights. Uh, for those awesome Timberwolves now, but um, it's really fun to be back on. It's great to talk to David Schultz and all these great guests uh, and hopefully learn a little something uh, both for you and also for me as well. Uh, I do want to invite you to tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m. at 10.30 a.m., uh, 6 a.m. We were, and we're, we're going to be celebrating the Gophers as as everyone is and as everyone should. We're going to have uh, all the highlights once again. Uh, Micah Gusinak is going to have the full forecast. Maybe it'll change by tomorrow. Maybe it will mitigate somewhat. Um, the <laughs> The problem with this forecast, as I look at it, it's still up on my screen, is occasionally on these early snows, it snows, and you don't have to shovel because it'll melt because it gets warmer, and there's no sign of that, none. So uh, that's uh, Michael. Michael had the update, and he's really good. I mean, he's really, really good. He really goes in there and he studies all these maps. He studies all the models, and comes out with with what he believes really will happen. And nine times out of ten, more than that, I would say, he he absolutely nails it. Uh, so six a.m., ten thirty a.m., and then our ten thirty, um, our guests, uh, my live guests, will be uh, Senator Tina Smith. I'm going to talk to her about. Uh, Impeachment. Obviously, it's going on in the House, but it does look like it will get into the Senate. What she thinks about the trial in the Senate, what she do, what is she doing to get ready? Also, she has a, a, some legislation that is, I think, very important that's proposed to help veterans cover their hearing costs. And this is unbelievable to me, but it's not automatically covered for veterans if they have hearing loss if like, for instance, they retire and then they are suffering severe hearing loss and they say, well, of course, this, is, this goes back to my deployments. That doesn't work that way. And the cost of hearing aids are, are it, it's enormous and, and usually not covered by insurance. Well, Tina Smith has a bill to, to um, cover that, which I think is very important. And also um, Secretary of State Steve Simon is going to talk to us about protecting our 2020 elections, because Minnesota was actually targeted here. Uh, we were not infiltrated, but Minnesota was one of the 
states targeted by foreign hackers. And we want to make sure that doesn't happen. We're also going to hear about the new primary, uh, the presidential primary, in which you'll only be able to vote in either the Republican primary or the Democratic primary. A little different there. So, folks, tune in. WCCO-TV, Sunday morning, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Have a wonderful Saturday evening. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.